0: This is The Gould Standard, Episode 46, Neil Gaiman, It's Not Sad Bits That Make You Cry, Part 1. I'm Brian Levine and welcome to The Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation, just celebrating our 40th anniversary year and we're here once again bringing you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. But first, while you're stopping by under our fascinatingly flickering neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe, kindly leave your comments, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. We'd also love you to pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca, and when you're there, If you find yourself in the grips of an irresistible compulsion to click the donate button, well, we'd be proud and honored to have you as a supporter. Now, today's guest is a writer who has made a singular contribution to the realm of fantasy fiction, not only because of the excellence of his work, but also because he's managed to reach an audience that spills out in all sorts of directions beyond what was the core audience I knew when I was first smitten by the genre. Neil Gaiman is a force unto himself. He has made landmark contributions in the realm of graphic novels, comics, prose novels, and collections of short stories, children's and young adult fiction, and essays, all revealing his signature qualities of humor, compassion, and a fascination with myths and legends, as well as forays occasionally into the zone of terror. Among his most beloved creations are the groundbreaking comic series Sandman, the novels American Gods, Coraline, Stardust, and the Graveyard Book, and one of my personal favorites, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. His work has been adapted for film, television, radio, and theater, earning him innumerable awards, incredible audience loyalty, and so many appearances on the New York Times bestseller list, that it must almost feel like an everyday occurrence for him. It was a thrill for us to meet Neil when he took part in our Glenn Gould Prize Jury, chaired by Laurie Anderson, the 2020 COVID edition, also known as the mother of all Zooms. And we're delighted that he's here with us today. Neil Gaiman, thank you so much for joining us on the on the Gould Standard. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's a real pleasure. Um, I'd like to start off with a quote, which I hope will resonate with you. Um, this is by Albert Einstein, no less. If you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be more intelligent, read them more fairy tales. Let's extend those wise words to the realm of myths. And specifically, let's talk about gods and godlike beings. Anyone who knows your work knows that these beings are among the central players, uh, whether it's the endless in Sandman, a cavalcade of different gods in American Gods and Anansi Boys, and then those somewhat hard to define beings like the hemstocks in Ocean at the End of the Lane. Um, how did you become so fascinated with mythology and divinities? Oh, I, it's
1: moments like this. I wish I had a proper origin story like people <laughs> doing in comics. You know, when I was four years old, I was bitten by a radioactive myth. <laughs> and, um, and the truth is I have no idea. I know what I responded to, um, and I know what lasted. You know, my mother, the books that I started out with were books that she'd ordered for me at the local little bookshop. And the Longfellows, the the Children's Hiawatha um, was one of the very first, and it was filled with Strange and beautiful myths. It's it's a book of filled with creation myths, origin myths, um, and by the same token, the other book that I got at the same time was uh, a beautiful illustrated edition of Browning's "Pipe Piper of Hamlin," which, again, it's a retelling of a story that happened. Um, Or didn't happen in, in Hamlin and how they lost their children and what it teaches us. Um, I remember the strange joy at the age of about six of finding Roger Lancelin Green, who was an English writer who retelled classical stories for kids and, uh, Lancelin Green, who caused me no end of pain as a small boy, because I just had the concept of of alphabetizing my uh, my bookshelf, and I didn't know whether his books went under G or L, um, which was painful. But uh, I remember his myths of the Norsemen, and loving that, and then falling much more deeply in love with his tales of ancient Egypt. And I was reading everything. I was a kid who read and whatever it was, whether it was Enid Blyton or the Scarlet Pimpernel, whether it was kids books like the William books or the Jennings books, or or whether it was adult books that I adults had left lying around. And I decided I liked the look of the cover, like, you know, Asimov's caves of steel. Um, I would, I would be reading everything, but the myths felt different. The myths fascinated me because they didn't feel like they were kid stories. They didn't feel like they were adult stories. They felt like they were part of the way that we thought or the way that we had seen the world or explained it to each other over the centuries, over the millennia. and. That felt magical, and as a as I grew, as I became a writer, um, myths and books of myths, I was always a sucker for them. You know, I was very lucky in that Penguin brought out these huge books of world myths when I was in my twenties, so I got to read newer and better. Uh, retellings of the Norse stories. And I also got to read, you know, discovering that the Native American stories are much better when told by Native Americans than they were when they were being retold by Longfellow. Um, and so reading retellings and collections by Native American writers of of their stories. And the thing that always fascinated me. Was these are ways of viewing the world, and I and I, I you know, I should not leave out um, in all this being eleven and twelve uh, when I was informed that I would be bar mitzvahed at thirteen and that I would be sent from Sussex. Uh, every weekend and for my school holidays to stay with my, uh, Jewish relatives in North London, where a extremely Orthodox, um, cantor would come in every day or every weekend and teach me. Um, but what I discovered incredibly quickly was that while I had very little interest, really, in learning my portion and learning to sing it and read it correctly. I, I I did fine. I acquitted myself well. But what I loved were the stories. What I loved were the myths. And again, it was suddenly discovering that there was a wealth of Jewish mythology waiting for me in the Midrash. Um, and I now had somebody, an adult who could think of nothing cooler Mm-hmm. than to tell an interested child everything he had so I I learned I think to love myth but I also always felt that it was slightly alien to me I was always sort of you know in the kitchen watching the myths dancing on the on the dance floor at the party. It's like, okay, I don't actually belong to any of you guys, but I love you.
0: That's wonderful. And it seems to me from everything I've read and from the fact that you actually created your own retelling of the Norse myths, that that is an area of mythology, whether it's the prose edda, the poetic edda, that particularly speaks to you, um, as opposed to the Greek and Roman Gods and myth- mythology that most of us were introduced to first. What was it about them that you found especially compelling? I mean, I, first of all, one of the things that always strikes me about, about the, those, both of those mythologies actually is that the, the gods are both human and remote from being human. They clearly have, you know, anger and lust and passion and jealousy, you know, really human characteristics, but they're also devoid of the um, restraints of ethical boundaries. So it's as though they're, you know, human beings who are imbued with enormous power, let's say like um, an oligarch today, but who has absolutely no constraints, no no impulse control whatsoever, and and is also amoral in a way that um, keeps them from ever being troubled by the the remotest thought that there might be a reason not to, you know, for example, sleep with the king's wife, you know, by turning into a, a shower of gold through that penetrates the the capsule in which she's been cast into the sea. That sort of thing um, was there. Is something specifically about the 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 Icelandic retelling of the Norse mythology that that spoke to you? I think. I
1: mean, I'm very fond of the Greek gods. Um, I love. I, I love those stories, I love those characters. Um but there is there was always a feeling for me that the shapes of their stories kind of fizzle out. And I think what always kept me awake and interested um in the Norse mythology is it comes it it, it has an end, it has a shape. Um It's not a particularly consistent shape. It's not the shape of something where somebody has sat down and gone, I'm going to build something and it will be story-shaped. But the fact that there is Ragnarok, that you're never quite clear whether this has happened or will happen, but it is implied that, you know, on some level it, has happened on some level. It will always be happening, and on some level, it has yet to come. And that it is through Ragnarok that um, you know you you're told what will happen. You're told who will kill who. You're told this is how these gods will die. That Thor will die in this way. That Odin will die in this way. They they you know and they will they will be slaying fenris wolf or they will be slaying the midgard serpent or or loki or whatever and this thing will happen and that darkness that end i think was always the thing that moved me from somebody who really liked Norse mythology to somebody who loved Norse mythology
0: oh that's fascinating and you've also spoken about the differences of climate and landscape as uh, factors that shape the culture of the Mediterranean world and by extension, their mythology versus Iceland and thereby the nature of the gods. It reminds me actually of um, three lines in a poem by the great American poet Wallace Stevens called Loneliness in Jersey City. I don't know if you know it. It was written in 1938. And the lines are, the people grow out of the weather, the gods grow out of the people.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. And it's true. Um, it's true in every way. Not only do you feel like, I mean, the biggest difference for me between the Greek gods and what we have of, of the Norse, um, is a lot of the Greek stuff has survived. You get the feeling that lots of people got to tell lots of people lots of stories. And there are all kinds of different stories about all kinds of different gods, and you definitely get the feeling of accretion, the feeling that, okay, you start out with this many gods, and then we conquer those people, or we just meet those people over the hill, and they have their gods. So now we have, you know, we, we both had 10 gods, and now we've all got 20 gods, And now we're going to have to figure out how this works. And and you feel like this this grows. Whereas we don't have that with the Norse. What we have with the Norse is nothing contemporary apart from a few inscriptions, carvings, and things from the time. Um, Everything that we have is after the conversion to Christianity, um, and it is being written down mostly so that the poets of the time would understand poetic references, would understand kennings. The idea of a, a kenning was a poetic phrase in Norse mythology that, that you know, uh, the sea is the whale road in the kenning. We shall walk the whale road, means we travel the whale road, means we'll, we'll cross the sea. Um, but why are Freya's tears gold and what does that mean? And so there, there's a lot of trying to give enough context of this thing that was already 200 years in the past. Um, and the feeling that what we got is a tiny amount as a retelling. Yeah. Some, some, Some poems which are being told, you feel, to people who already know the story. Um, Some prose retellings that are there to explain, but they'll leave a lot out. They will apparently contradict each other. Um, And and I love that, too, the feeling that... um, you know, retelling Greek Roman myths, I feel like you really need to have researched your stuff, and even when you do, somebody else is gonna say, Well, I understand I can see that you got that from Ovid and Right, right, right. But you know, have you have you looked at this little known thing and you're like, ah oh, and you're you're deep in your Lomprier's classical dictionary, chasing down references and and stuff. Whereas with the Norse you can actually say, Well, there's we have four poems that talk about this thing, and I can build the story from those four poems.
0: And we obviously owe a tremendous debt to one man, Snorri, is it Snorleson? Um And it, what strikes me, I mean, in, in becoming aware of, of him and how vital he was in, in preserving that tradition in Iceland, that, you know, first of all, it reminds me about of people like Alan Lomax going out into the Appalachian Hills to collect folk songs before they disappeared uh, in the 20th century. But also what strikes me is we seem to know a lot more about him than we know about, say, William Shakespeare, you know, 400 years or so later. Um, and he seems to have been quite a uh, a, a fascinating character in his own right. Well,
1: I think partly that's because Snorri was a politician. Um you know, I think had Snorri simply been a bard of had it, had he been one of these poets that he was writing for, we might not have as much. But also, the population of Iceland was not a huge one. Um, the fact that Iceland uses still, you know, still uses patronymics. Snorri's name is Snorri. Um, I actually had to explain this to my publisher. When they explained that how style meant that they needed to change his name to Sturluson. and I'm saying no you're, what you're saying there is his name is son of Stur that's not his name his name is Snorri. that's um and Shakespeare I feel like is was doing an incredibly unimportant job um he was you know at the time. Making plays—that was, you know, there were probably worse jobs you could do, cleaning toilets um, or whatever. But making plays was not something you did for respect. It was something that you did because you were you had some ability to do it, and you got paid. You didn't mm-hmm. get paid very much, but you got paid enough. It sounds like and- writing comics in the nineteen thirties. Uh, honestly like writing comics in the 1990s uh probably (laughs) actually I, i i hate to say it like probably like writing comics now for most people um but yeah it was it it was a low status job and it was not a job that anybody was keeping track of whereas statesman which snorri was um contentious Statesman is the kind of thing that people do keep track of. I think it's one reason why people would love, you know, apart from simple snobbery, I think one reason why people would love Shakespeare to have been the Earl of Oxford or the Earl of Essex or the Earl of Southampton or Francis Bacon or any of these guys is because we have, because they were fancy, we know stuff about them we know more about them. And we could point, we could say, well, obviously this thing in the Earl of Southampton's life aligns with what we know about Shakespeare. And thus it proves with Shakespeare, we got, you know, we got nothing really. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What you say about the, um the landscape of Iceland, you know, the, the fact that it is an environment that can kill you in an instant, if you wander off in, in a storm or if there's an eruption or whatever, I think that, you know, I mean, Nietzsche talks of in, in his early work, The Birth of Tragedy, about the Greek tragedies, revealing a tragic consciousness, unheralded and unprecedented in human history. But surely, you know, you can take that to the power of 10 when you're developing gods that explain what life is like and the world is like in the cosmology of a place like Iceland is. And it seems to me, in fact, um, uh, one of our, our friends and, and past laureates, Robert Lepage, when he um, created the settings for his production of um, the Wagner Ring Cycle, went to Iceland and studied the, the landscape and you know, the huge outcroppings, and he created this titanic machine to represent all the different realms. Um, what do you make of the Wagnerian take on Wotan and company? Have you ever sat through a complete production of the Ring? I never have. I've read,
1: I've, I've, I've sat there and read librettos, I've listened to it. Um, I've occasionally promised myself that maybe before I die, I will go off to do a ring cycle. And of course, more important for me and my personal life than any of these things, I had huge blow- ups of the Arthur Rackham posters. Uh, which were just little tiny watercolor illustrations when he did them um, on my wall as a teenager. They, his his firehead Logie, uh, talking to the Rhine maidens. Those, all of that imagery, um, felt like it was important mm-hmm. to me. Um, but I also was fascinated by the way that you you were now one step removed from the myth you know I, it, it is it what fascinates one of the things that fascinates me about myths is that it feels like as they get older they rot down and other things grow in the mound where they were And Wagner feels to me like something, or or the Ring Cycle feels like something that grew in the rotting down of the Norse myths, in the same way that you could point to something like the story of Beauty and the Beast and say, This grew in the rotting down of, of Eros and Psyche. You know, you start out with Eros and Psyche, and it has a lot of almost. They're incredibly similar stories, and you have the invisible people, and you have the sisters, and you have the girl going, and you have something that was one of the great mysteries of Greek religion, which becomes myth, which then, after a while, becomes something that you're entertaining children with, and then becomes something that you grow um, various beautiful retellings. Of that
0: story out of but it's the same cycle that gets you there right it, it's true um and certainly in Wagner's case you've got the uh, 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 an archetypally romantic sensibility being grafted onto these legends on the other hand one of um Wagner's greatest influences intellectually was Schopenhauer who did have this image of a vast uncaring universe that would ultimately swallow us all up so there is also a kind of a a weird reconnection with some of the elements that that bind together the the original myths um, oh it, absolutely
1: yeah and also you know I love I mean talking about what things give other things um we would not have Lord of the Rings if which is one of the great flowerings of 20, 20th century story um without the ring cycle yes you know that 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 ring which is fascinating and important then takes root in. Tolkien's head and you can see him turning the ring around and playing with it and going okay well that I don't want to tell that story but this ring this is important somehow and right. I and I want a dragon and if you've got a dragon then you must have a ring and and you know he sets out writing the hobbit with nothing in his head apart from He's written down in a hole in the ground. There lived a Hobbit. And he doesn't even know what a Hobbit is. He has giant myths going on, but now he's telling something that's meant to be a fairy tale, but it winds up coming into this Numenoran mythology that he's creating in his head to go with languages. Mm -hmm. And now it has a ring, which is just starts out as a magic invisibility ring. Right. Um, and now it has a dragon. And then that grows
0: into Lord of the Rings. And it, I love that. Exactly. And even though Tolkien, you know, vociferously protested that his ring had nothing to do with Wagner, I always thought, well, the lady doth protest too much, perhaps. Well, it it, it it's really
1: always a weird thing to try and explain where art comes comes from Um, is tolkien's ring wagner's ring no it's not not. has he taken that ring from wagner and put it into his own story no he absolutely hasn't has the idea of that ring become a thing that you know whether it's just like a piece of, of grit in an oyster that is going to form its own pearl is that one of the ingredients, if you took that out of civilization, would Tolkien have written Lord of the Rings? I don't think he would have done. He would mm. might have written something, something else. Um, but you do feel like that ring comes from that place in the same way that, you know, that his dragon – you know, Smaug is not mm-hmm. a Wagnerian dragon any more than his dragon is the Beow- the dragon from Beowulf. Right. And yet, he also, you know, he famously did his translation of Beowulf. He is somebody who writes one of the subtlest, most dangerous um, dragons that we have. And that, it's, it's it, both things can be true. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, and also writers are not to be trusted because we don't know. Right. You know, I, I was reading recently um, something written by uh, Roger Zelazny, mm-hmm. where he talks about coming up with the ideas for the amber series and he has all of these things that obviously were influences on amber and then he mentions somebody else sent him to a book that he must have read when he was in his early teens that he had completely forgotten existed which is filled with names that he had re- and ideas that he had reused in amber and and it's like okay that's he and he had no awareness that that was where he had got them from because they'd crept in too deep um and i'm always aware that it's very easy to think you've come up with an idea that you have come up with an idea but in order to come up with that idea, you had to have read something else, experienced something else, and then forgotten. It's bubbled up from the substrate. Yeah. Or it's rotted down into something that something new but
0: similar can grow into. Right. Exactly. Okay. Here's segue alert. Okay. So mythology also has its own stepchildren, legends, fairy tales, folk tales, and ballads. Uh, and almost none of them take the literal material world as the only reality for example, like the world religions and the great schools of philosophy do, do you see the world of superheroes and fantasy fiction as being the latest addition to these beyond uh, material reality uh, foundations in the popular mindscape? And as a kind of a secondary, um, is there a danger of people becoming so deeply enmeshed in those imaginary worlds that they retreat from engagement with reality? I think that there
1: is always, with any realm of the imagination, that you can go into a danger that people will retreat from reality into it. And by the same token, I'm never convinced that this is necessarily a bad thing. Um, if you said of somebody, you know, you say, where, where is Fred? And you're told, oh, he's gone on a retreat. You would not go. That is a bad thing. He should be here <laughs> experiencing reality. Um, the idea that you can leave f- your world and go on a retreat, that you can go on a holiday, that, you know, escapism, as Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both pointed out, um, implies escape. And escape is not a bad thing either. Sometimes you really need one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes you can come back from your retreat into fiction. You can come back from your retreat and your escape into story, whatever the story is, with tools, with weapons, with armor, with ways of dealing with the world that you might not have had before it. Um, Is that sometimes going To be a bad thing, maybe sometimes you're going to meet people whose hold on reality is fragile enough that reading some comics or reading some books is going to tip them over the edge. But then you're also going to run into people whose hold on reality is fragile enough that reading the Bible or reading white power manifestos online mm-hmm. um, is going to tip them over the edge. And on the whole, I would rather deal with the people who have gone over the edge from reading comic books or reading fantasy than deal with the people who've gone over the edge reading the white power manifestos.
0: Yeah, well, for sure. for Absolutely for sure. Yeah, I I'm, was only thinking about things like, you know, if – you know, let's say the the equivalent of Thanos uh, in our time, like nuclear war, um, in the uh, in the comic book or the Marvel film. You know, eventually you get to bring back the fifty percent of the of the, the the living beings who were done away with. Um, well, there may not be that kind of a coming back if you know someone actually gets a little a little over the top and, and presses the nuclear button.
1: But what I love about that is. For me, what's so interesting is that we wind up in cultures describing stories that are always about now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the thing that you learn first studying science fiction when you start studying it and you stop reading it is you go, oh, I thought it was about the future. And it's absolutely about the time in which it is set. And I think horror and fantasy are the same thing. So, uh, for me, you know, nuclear war fish f- fiction is absolutely Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're in a place where people came and dropped atomic bombs. And now here's a giant dinosaur with laser beam eyes stomping cities and destroying and you know 50% of those people are not coming back. Right. Uh, you know, the original Godzilla is not going to be bringing back um anybody it stomps. Yeah. And then you get into okay, what what was what does horror tell us about mm-hmm. things? I think the fact that right now and for the last um maybe 50 years the rise of the zombie mm-hmm. you know zombies were always the dullest of the the threats to us they were they were the boring ones yes. know, people were much more interested in frankenstein's monster or the wolfman or dracula or the mummy there's an exoticism and then about the point Night of the Living Dead happens, zombies, which had been about fear of islands, fear of voodoo, fear of people who were unlike us and cultures that were unlike us, fear of reprisals for things that white people had done Mm -hmm. on Caribbean islands, all of that kind of stuff, suddenly became just about this world in which some people die and keep going and a world in which you can't communicate to a lot of people who may want to kill you, but it's not even personal. They're just kind of hungry, but they are relentless. And the feeling that it was describing something about the existential horror of being now um you know and i watch i watch the way that zombie stories keep being told and retold and mm-hmm. what the different zombies mean and how how they go and it's like this one now this one doesn't die yeah it's not moving out of fashion it's just this thing where people you know we look around and we see other people not interacting with us anymore and the distance we feel from other people we no longer live in groups of 50 people yep. in as once we did knowing everybody and feeling supported um instead we're living in cities or we're living online or we uh feel a long way mm-hmm. from our people and we know that we're one bad night away from the zombies banging at the door.
0: Right. And that is actually a superb uh counterexample because if one thing about the the rise of zombie fiction has helped us to do it is to engage actively in our imaginations with the dangers of an apocalyptic future rather than escaping from it. Absolutely. And
1: we are in you know the the the, the bit that is so strange is we're in an apocalyptic future. We arrived there. um, And not just in the sense of future shock, but in the sense of the future happened. Yes. And it wasn't like we expected it. it. And anything that we had done to make sense of it for ourselves, which mostly in my case consisted of watching an awful lot of Star Trek and Doctor Who, um did not feel that it had left us adequately prepared for the world that we're
0: actually in that is for sure, well, moving in in a, a different direction, perhaps a little bit less um grim uh, aside from mythology, it seems to me that another one of the the wellsprings for your creative life um extends from your childhood the that little Inner being who's full of wonder and awe, new discovery, um, who really never leaves us. Um, and that these two roads, the mythological road and the childhood road seem to crisscross very frequently in your work. But childhood can also be a, um, a challenging and a fearful time, you know, and I think that that really, um, in some ways comes through in the ocean at the end of the lane. And, you know, the, the, there's a very, well-known Canadian doctor and specialist on addiction and trauma, Dr. Gabor Mate, who wrote, love felt by the parent d- does not automatically translate into love experienced by the child. And it seems to me that some of those, let's say, role doll-esque, you know, awfulnesses of childhood do come through in, in your book, um, particularly in the person of Ursula Moncton, the flea. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about, where, particularly because, without overemphasizing the parallels to your own life, it does seem like one of your most personal books. Um, talk about where trauma and the 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 terrors of childhood um, entered into into the creation of that book. So, one of the things
1: that I've been doing as long as i've been writing really is and doing every 10 15 years is just diving into childhood and strip mining uh one of the first books that i ever wrote was called violent cases and it's about being 3 years old going on 4 um mm-hmm. and about how much I hated going to birthday parties and it's about how my father um which is true, uh when I was three dislocated my shoulder. I was trying to go downstairs, he was trying to pull me upstairs, and my shoulder went. And um and I, I he took me to an osteopath and many years later I was talking to him about that and talking about my memories of the osteopath. And he said, you know, he was Al Capone's osteopath. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, yeah. He said, he told me a bit about it. He, He'd been, you know, he'd been in America as a child, but he'd come to England um, in the 50s. And there he was in 1963 when you got your arm. And that story, that I went, oh, I need, to tell that story and wrote this sort of very feverish story about how, um, you know, uh, the 1920s Chicago and ni- early 1960s Portsmouth become one place in my head and told that story. Um, and some years later, I had a book called mr punch which was again took its inspiration there we go from um several conversations with family at a time it it was that oddness of i got caught in the rain in Deptford in east london ducked out of the rain into an antique shop they had some books there for sale and because it was bucketing down it was the kind of rain that you cannot stand out in so you're in a shop and now I'm embarrassed and I need to buy something and they've got a few very cheap little books and one of them is a Mr Punch and Judy book mm-hmm. and it's just memories of this Punch and Judy and I, and I look at the end of it And the punch, the man who wrote it, the punch and Judy professor who wrote it, just tells in incredibly quick summary the story of punch and Judy and how punch is given the baby by his wife, and the baby won't stop crying, so he throws it out of the window and kills it. And his wife comes home, tells her, tells him off, so he kills her. The policeman comes to arrest him, he kills the policeman. Then there's an interlude with. A clown and a crocodile, neither of whom Punch manages to kill, but he apparently appears dead, but is brought back to life by a doctor. He kills the doctor. He then kills the hangman or the devil who comes to punish him for all of his misdeeds. And then it ended with the line, and then Mr. Punch goes up and down the country, delighting both young and old with the antics of retelling his story. (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) And I saw that, the idea of, I saw those stories when I was a kid, but I never thought of it in those terms. And you're not thinking of it in those terms, but I now am. And I started talking to my family about Punch and Judy and suddenly found myself going down strange rabbit holes of family law of, you know, yes, here's my grandfather once owned a, uh, a sort of tiny failing amusement park, apparently. And there was a Punch and Judy man in it. I'm like, okay, that's something I can remember. Mm-hmm. And then I get told, and it had a mermaid. And that was also somehow important. That There was a mermaid who swam around in it. And then I started thinking a lot about my Uncle Monty, my grandfather's younger brother, who was hunchbacked, who I adore, like, and Punch in the puppet is, is a hunchback puppet. And I had adored Monty because he was the first adult I could look in the eye. Mm. Um, he wound up as a bookie, a very successful, I think, or relatively successful bookie. Um, and um, and then, but then discovering, trying to find out why he had a hunchback. And there's just a conversation, which I think I put verbatim pretty much into the book, where I ask an aunt had a family do i said what what was wrong with uh monty and uh i said was it was it a childhood disease what what had happened do we know why and she said oh he was thrown out of the window Ah. and i said really and then another relative who'd been listening to this conversation said don't talk nonsense she said he had um you know he had tuberculosis as a baby that was what him she said you're thinking of the twins she said (laughs) it was one of them that was thrown out of the window but it wasn't thrown out the window it was thrown downstairs and he died and i'm just sitting there feeling like i'm listening to unheard of unimaginable family horror about people that i do not know even existed before they're mentioned i thought okay i'm gonna write this one this one Mm. This has now become a story for me. Uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane, I always feel for me is another one of those. And it began in the strangest possible way, which is I was missing my wife. She'd gone to Australia to record an album. I wasn't going to see her for three or four months. And I thought, well, I'll write her a short story. I'd tried she had taken me to where she grew up. She had taken me to the house she grew up in. She'd taken me to the school she attended. I'd met some of her teachers. I, I felt like um, I knew I knew the town that she had grown up in. Um, I tried taking her to where I'd grown up and failed because none of those places existed anymore there were all of these houses and fields were now housing estates and there are houses there, but they aren't any of the ones that I could talk about. And I thought I'll write a short story for her and it won't be my family quite, but I'll have me in it and I'll have the places so I can describe the places that I grew up and Um, and I'd had this idea since I was really small. I was probably about 10 when my mother had mentioned to me that one of the farms down the lane that we lived in was mentioned in the doomsday book. And I said, what's the doomsday book? And she said, that's the book that William the Conqueror Caused to be compiled of all of his properties, everything in England, now that he'd taken over England. And I thought, whoa, so it's that farm is a thousand years old. And the, by the way, it wasn't, it was probably about 600 years old. But I thought that farm is, is a thousand years old. And then I just remember thinking, I wonder if the people, that, that nice old farm lady who gives me milk when I go down to the farm, um, fresh from the cow. I wonder if she has been there for a thousand years. And that, that idea just of this farm that's always there and the people who are always there was probably the oldest idea for a story I'd ever had. It had yeah. just sat there in my head. These were the people. By the time I was 12 or 13, they were called the Hempstocks. I don't really even know why. So I thought, I'll write about them. I'll write that story about that place. And Ocean at the End of the Lane, um, it's now been turned into a play by the National Theatre in the UK. And I love the play. And the play is even further away from me in that now... You know to to make the story work better, the kid's mother has died. Mm. It's just two kids and a father. Um, and they've they've made some things just simpler and more granular so that it can be done on the stage. Mm-hmm. And yet the it makes me cry. and I thought. The first time I saw a run through, I was crying and I thought this is really strange. I have to flick away the tears without anybody noticing Mm -hmm. because I'm under a full light because we're not, I'm just in a rehearsal room at the back of the national theater. The second time I saw it was at the opening press night and I'm sitting there sobbing and I realized my wife is on one side of me sobbing. And I thought, well, that's not, that's okay. She, she cries. And then I realized that the, hard-bitten newspaper journalist sitting on the other side of me is sobbing you know i'm watching tears splash down on his notebook I'm going, okay that that's a thing something's happening here and these days i've now seen it four times every time i cry i don't cry because it's sad Mm -hmm. it's not sad bits that make you cry it's the bits where you just sort of feel things that are too big to quite fit into your chest so they
0: come out through your eyes The Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to keep bringing inspiring stories to life. Please consider giving by visiting our website glengould.ca and follow us across social media at the Glenn Gould Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Gould Standard.